All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Jad Husker. Jad is a leadership and human performance expert, best-selling author and speaker. Crunch Time, Jad's most recent book, which was co-authored with professional baseball pitching coach Rick Peterson, reveals the secrets of how to be your best under pressure. This book has been life-changing in my mindset, changing my mind and what is possible, and how we can actually start to achieve our dreams, and not just wish for them, by becoming our best self when it matters the most. And in this interview, we discuss how to deal with pressurised situations, seeing the opportunities rather than the threats of a situation, his amazing book, Crunch Time, why reframing can be a life-changing skill for you, why you need to train easy to go hard, how you can learn to embrace the chaos, the need for deliberate practice, and so much more. And now, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for doing this, dude. I cannot say thank you enough. I've read your book, well, on the audio book now, over twice, and it's helped me in ways I never thought possible. But for people who don't know your name, could you just give a quick introduction? Sure. Uh, my name is Judd Hoekstra, and I've worked with the Ken Blanchard Companies, which is a leadership development company for the past 20 years. And, um, you know, I, I serve in a couple different roles there. Primarily, my primary role is as a sales executive. So I'm uh, out in high pressure situations with my salespeople on a regular basis. And, you know, I'll just say that from a personal perspective, um, I chose this topic because I myself uh, at various points in my life have struggled in pressure situations. And then as you know, now I'm married and I've got uh, two kids, a wonderful daughter and son. And um, I found they were struggling in pressure situations, whether it was taking a test, whether it was competing in a swim meet, whether it was playing in a hockey game, you know, any number of different things. And I've, I found that, you know, like their dad, <clears throat> they didn't, they didn't have, you know, performing under pressure mastered. And I thought there's people who are incredibly, uh, they, they perform incredibly well under pressure. They must know some secrets I don't know. And so, uh, I was fortunate enough to get connected with, uh, former major league baseball pitching coach, Rick Peterson. And he certainly knows a lot about pressure because, you know, as a, as a major league baseball pitching coach, you, you go out on the mound, you call a timeout, you go out on the mound and you talk to your pitcher. And in 30 seconds or less, you have to get them calmed down and back on track, ready to perform. And within a matter of minutes, the, the crowd that's watching in the stadium, as well as the crowd watching on TV will know, whether your coaching was effective or not. So um, I, I really wanted to tap into the expertise of Rick. And then Rick uh, and I both have fabulous networks of people, both inside and outside the business world. So we, we had an opportunity to interview um, you know, professional athletes and professional athlete, athletic coaches and CEOs and uh, 
executive coaches and Navy SEAL trainers and Navy SEALs and people in Hollywood. So we really were able to interview quite a wide um, array of folks from a variety of different industries and settle in on, you know, what was the secret to them being able to perform well under pressure. Because it was really strange because I found you through uh, a recommendation on Instagram and I thought, oh, here we go, another one of these, you know, <laughs> like changing the rituals sort of thing. And and then it's that as I listened to it, it, it made sense. You know, you, you don't go into it like super deep and, you know, talk all the, the fluff, but you just give straightforward stories that people can relate to, understand and techniques to use. And um, as we were discussing before the interview, it wasn't just pressurized situations. I was using it to help with obtrusive thoughts from OCD. You mentioned there about um, a friend who was dealing with PTSD. And, you know, it's that kind of thing of like, this was one of the first times I've ever seen one of these books that has reliable, useful, you know, fixes, but actually can use in such a short term. And is that where you think guys were going wrong before that we were just not believing we could change your thing? We had that fixed mindset that that's the way I deal with pressure. Why bother trying to change it? I'll, you know, I'll speak for myself and say that I, I think I went into it thinking that, you know, some people were born with this gift of being calm under pressure and, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be one of those people? And I realized very few people are actually gifted with that, that it's a skill and it's a skill that can be developed. Anybody can develop it. And, um, it's, it's actually quite, quite practical and easy to learn. And so as I got further into it, I thought, gosh, if my 12 year old son can do it, if my, um, you know, sister-in-law singing in the church choir, if this is working for her, if it's working for me, if it's working for average everyday people, in addition to the you know, exemplars that we interviewed, then, you know, there's hope for all of us, right? I guess is the, is the conclusion I came to. Cause that's the thing. And it's like the way our brains are set up was back in the sort of caveman days that yes, it's great to panic and hit your fight or flight when, you know, a saber toothed tiger was chasing you or there was a, like a, a unknown fear and you panic, but in a situation where we're going and speaking to some colleagues at work or, you know, we're going to compete in a sp sports or, you know, whatever it is, we don't need that level now, but it's how we come out of that programming and actually be able to deal with it in a logical way. And I thought, oh yeah, let's see how we can do this. I think two minutes using one of your techniques about thinking about, you know, is this the way I want to act? Is this the way I want to think? And I can actually catch myself before I go into a rant in my head or a negative <laughs> viewpoint. And I was like, whoa, because everybody knows me. I'm a miserable bastard at times. <laughs> and I was like, well, we this... all are in our own head, Ian. That's the, that's the joy of it. Some of us show it on the outside more than others, but we all are inside our own heads instinctively. That, well, that's what I loved about the book was you don't lie about it. You know, you, you are open about it, how, you know, this uh, kids have this you know, women, men, athletes, young people, old people, we all deal with this in different ways. And I used to think I was like in that boat, oh, I can't change. You know, I'm just, this is the way I deal with pressure. Other people are cooler and calmer. And I felt like I self-sabotaged. Like my brain just said, you know, like I was in a sports event, like I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Sometimes I tap if the pressure was too dangerous or give up a, a bad 
you know, go into a bad position to allow the person to beat me because it was too stressful to, to compete at that level. And that bugs me that I kept doing this over and over. You know, I would give up when I was playing football if somebody shouted at me and I'd go into my head. And, and I think a lot of young people stop playing sports because of incidents like this. We can't be as good as we want to be. And we, we beat ourselves up in our head. And I loved a bit in the book about how you are your own worst enemy you know, how you yourself talk. How do you start working with somebody, to, you know, apart, without going into sort of reframing, but how would you even start acknowledging somebody that you can have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset to believe they can change? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll just share that I, I learn best through stories. And so, you know, the book is basically a storybook. It's, you know, a compilation of different, you know, stories from interviews we did as well as personal experiences. And, um, you know, anytime I'm trying to influence someone, I think the, you know, the art of storytelling and the art of being able to share how something that you've tried has worked in your life. And, you know, you care about this person and you hope that uh, what, what has worked for you will work for them too. And so, um, in many cases, I, I try to create that growth mindset in others by sharing that, hey, I, I thought I was hopeless in terms of being able to perform well under pressure. And, and I, I learned some things from somebody else and, you know, they worked for me and I'd love to pass them along to you if, if you're open to hearing. And if people are open to hearing, then um, I, I'm more than happy to share what I've learned. And so it's, you know, you, you do have to have someone on the on the receiving end of it, who, who is at least willing to, you know, whether, even if they're skeptical, at least willing to listen. And, but so I'll, I'll leave it up to them. You know, are you, are you willing to at least listen, even if you're skeptical, I don't mind skeptics at all. Um, I was, a, I, you know, find myself skeptical in many cases. So um, are you willing to listen? And if you are, then I'll share my experience with you. And I can't promise you that it's going to help you, but I can, you know, can let you know that it's helped me and it's helped others. Because that's definitely, it's like, I've read a heap of these, you know, through like doing the podcast and just sort of my own sort of interest, try and prove. And I felt like, no, you know, I just couldn't seem to find something that I could relate to. And when I got to yeah, listening to the audio book, I actually stopped walking and I had to just listen because it was like you were speaking the, the truth that I needed to hear. And I know that sounds a bit sort of like up in the sky kind of talk, but it blew me away and it was kind of like, oh, when you start talking about reframing, I was like, yeah, will that work? And then as you explained it and you got deeper into it, I thought, wow, I, I see the point now. I was allowing each opportunity to be a threat, to take it as how am I going to go wrong? How am I going to fail? How stupid I'm going to look if I get caught rather than turning it into an opportunity. Could you go into a little bit about reframing? You know, why is it key and what sort of benefits can it bring? Because I, I couldn't imagine why this this is one of the best techniques I'd heard and it's not well known. It, it kind of scares me that this isn't taught to kids at school and things like that. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, I mentioned we interviewed folks from exemplars from across many different lines of work and, and play and... Um, what we figured out the common thread was across across those exemplars was that in pressure situations they were able to flip the switch in their mind and they were able to essentially you know switch the switch goes from 
your instinctive thought of that pressure situation being a threat to flipping it to seeing it as an opportunity. And it sounds super simple when you say it like that. It's obviously much harder in practice. Um, you know, it, it does require some practice, but the, the the actual sort of skill of reframing is we. It's it's pretty straightforward. It's the, you know consciously thinking about a situation in a new or different way. And when you think about that situation in a new or different way, it changes how you interpret it. It changes the actions you take. It changes the results you achieve. And so it's really, um, you know, I have a, a colleague of mine, an executive coach at the Ken Blanchard companies named Kate Larson. And she, she had a great analogy for it. She said, you know, think about reframing like this. You, you know, you get into your car and you pull it out of the garage and you are driving down the road and the radio is playing really low in the background. You're not really paying attention to it. And then all of a sudden you turn the radio up and think about the radio and the song that's playing as the, the voice in your head. So you turn the, turn the volume up and it's playing a song that you don't really like. So that's kind of your negative self-talk that we all experience, uh, especially when we're in pressure situations. And at that particular point in time, you know, you have a choice. That's then maybe that's like the, the instinctual thought is that negative or, you know, the, the song that you don't like playing on the radio, the negative self-talk, you now have a choice. You can actually keep listening to it and let it affect your mood, or you can change the station. Um, and you know, the, the, the key to reframing is thinking about, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to keep playing this song. That's driving me crazy. I can actually think a different thought. I'm in control of my thoughts. Um, I can't, I, I can't, say that I will avoid all negative self-talk and thoughts that come into my head, but I don't have to stick with them and I don't have to act on them. So this idea of reframing is, you know, you get this uh, thought that a pressure situation is a threat that you're, you know, you're going to be made fun of. You're going to, you're going to fail. You're going to, you know, people, you're going to be the laughing stock. You're not going to be able to show your face around there anymore. Uh, these are all things that we all experience instinctively. And I think that's the other, one of the, probably the biggest aha for me um, related to this was, you know, give yourself some grace, right? Um, you're not the only one that thinks that way. These are instinctive thoughts that are hardwired into humans operating systems that would allowed us to survive the prehistoric times when we were being chased by saber tooth tigers. You know, that, that part of our operating system served us really well at that point in time. It doesn't serve us well now when most of the threats we face are, you know, um, they're, they're mental pressures. Uh, they're not, they're not, you know, survival pressures from a physical standpoint. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Cause I remember when I was reading about neuro-linguistic programming and things like that, you know, that you can never kind of get rid of those voices, but you can dampen them down. You know, you can get them to a point where they're not really in the roost. And for example, like I wanted to compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and in Scotland, we're currently closed with COVID, but I knew that I was building up in my head that I was going to do it before, once we could get back to tournaments. And then I started getting those little doubts, you know, like, oh, you're not as good as the other people. You're out of shape. They're going to beat you up. <laughs> before I knew it, I was like, oh, I can't do this. You know, I'd, and I liked that about the book was I started using it. I reframed it. You know, this is an opportunity. It's not a threat to be shown up on. This was an opportunity to display my jujitsu. You know, like I even got like a wee table and put reframe and then like, you know, opportunity and threat and wrote out detailed notes on it and what a difference it makes, even if you just do it in your head. Yeah. And it really worked on me to see that there was benefit of it. Even if I did go and get 
creamed by every opponent, I could still come away with learning more about my jiu-jitsu, overcome the pressure of it, get the experience points from just turning up, you know, overcoming a doubt about myself that I had that I could never achieve something like that. You know, these are all valuable lessons and it's an amazing tool. Um, Now, what I was interested in it was, can you ever, I know you can never get rid of that caveman voice, but you, but you can get sort of dampen it. But how do we reframe it? Do we do it to a simple point or do you, can you go overboard with how you reframe it into an opportunity? You know, do you have to just keep it simple to let it, be absorbed into the brain if that makes sense yeah i well my, for myself personally i do like to try to keep it simple i'm a i am a fairly simple practical guy and uh the the more complex the solution the less likely it is i'm going to implement it so i can't speak for everybody else on their reframing uh technique but mine is is to keep it simple uh you know i, I mentioned a few questions that i ask myself and these tend to work you know in a variety of different situations. I'll just, you know, I think one of the things that happens is how do we, how do we sort of escape our own mind and fly up above and take a look at the situation from, you know, 30,000 foot view and almost even laugh at ourselves at how we're thinking about it on the ground level. Um, but the questions that, I, you know, that I like to ask myself, and these are pretty darn simple is, you know, I think about somebody that I, you know, really respect or revere. And I think about, you know, what would this person do in that situation? And, you know, uh, you know, whether it's I, a colleague of mine says she really looks up to Winston Churchill. And she, so every time she's in one of these situations, she says, well, what would Winston Churchill do in this situation? You know, he certainly wouldn't, you know, panic, or he certainly wouldn't choose a terrible response. So if I think about it from what he would do, then I'm more likely to do something like that. Um, could be obviously anybody that you revere, whether it's living or dead. Uh, the other, the other thing that I ask myself, being a parent, is I'll say, you know, what would I tell my kids to do in this situation? Because I tend to find myself pretty grounded and rational, and the advice I give my kids is I'd like to think, you know, pretty sound. Whereas I don't, you know, my instinctual reaction wouldn't be to necessarily do the same things that I would recommend to my kids. So, Hey, if I'm <laughs> recommending this to my kids, why wouldn't I do it myself? Um, that's another easy question. The, the other one, um, you know, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? So you mentioned the, you know, getting back into jujitsu and, you know, you had fear, worry, and doubt going through your mind. We call those the deadly trio of demotivators. You know, I, I asked the question, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And this is a big one for, you know, I'll just say, um, you know, we all, we all have fears, but there's some people that fear things worse than others. And, you know, if, if you could wipe the slate clean of all that fear and just say, what would I do if I didn't have all this? And then, you know, 99% of what we fear doesn't ever come true anyway. So take action on what you would do if you weren't afraid. And, um, that those are just little, I, I, I think they're quite simple questions to ask. And, um, just three of them. And right there, you, you've already started changing how you're thinking about the situation from sort of that initial instinctual reaction that doesn't help you very much. No, I really like that. I mean, I, I like that kind of, a, I've, I've seen it mentioned where people say, you know, act as if, or fake it till you make it kind of thing. And, you know, I think there's a Paul McKenna technique where he talks about seeing the version of you, you want to be 
and then you walk into it, you know, like you close your eyes and you pretend you walk into that version of you and then you take over him and use that version that's meant to give you more confidence and things like that. And it does work to an extent, but I, I find we do kind of, we have to use examples of people we want to imitate, you know, and it's like, I really like that whole philosophy. And I was kind of looking and going, right, where am I looking as threats? You know, oh, my inbox is full at work. Oh, I'm going to get caught out for being lazy and not good enough at my job. Oh, the opportunity. I can actually organize this better, produce systems to go in and create and make it easier. And I thought it really kind of makes you smile and feel less pressure just in those situations. But I was wondering how you would do it with, you know, everybody watching, like the a crowd there in the real time when, you know, like you have like in the baseball story uh, with Izzy, where there's thousands of fans shouting hate at you, you're you're playing badly, and then you said Rick just walked up, told a bit of funny joke, and you know it kind of switched it over. Why why does humor have such an impact on? Our performance how can it let us snap out of you know this programming that we just run off in the back of our head without realizing to actually being able to step up and act as if as we want to yeah i think what i learned was that you know that you know laughing and and humor actually changes the chemistry in your body for the to the favorable so you know, when you're in a pressure situation, your your body is likely flooded with the stress hormone cortisol, and that that essentially hurts your thinking. It sort of you're you're you are stuck in your caveman brain at that particular stage of the situation. And what laughter does is it it actually releases you know dopamine, which is a you know endorphin. That it's, it's the same type of uh, chemical that you get if you get a runner's high or you know you know some athletic performance high that, that, um, you know, it just sort of opens you up to think differently. And actually, you know, you're, there's, there's proof that your mind is much more open to learning something and hearing something once you've laughed. Um, comedians know this, you know, and, and, you know, use it to their advantage. Um, and so humor is a huge part of it. And I, I actually, you know, keep a list of, you know, what I'll have, you know, stand up comedy on my iPhone, you know, at the ready. Uh, if I'm, if I'm driving to a meeting that is a high pressure situation, I'll, I'll be listening to stand up comedy just literally to get my body chemistry in the spot that I'm so relaxed and laughing and sort of clear headed, um, that it, you know, feels like I don't have a care in the world, even though there, it, it is a high pressure situation. So I think there's, you know, we have, in the modern world with iPhones, with, you know, access to just about anything at any time, anywhere, there's really no excuse not to, you know, tap into some of those tools and, you know, other tools in addition to, you know, the use of humor would just be, um, if you, if you perform really well, like when, after you get done performing really well, you know, take a voice memo or jot down your thoughts and say, you know, what was it about that performance that I loved? How did I feel after it? And, you know, bring yourself back to that place by reviewing those notes or, you know, your, your voice memo, whatever it might be. So I think, you know, people, maybe it sounds corny, but, uh, you know, we've got the tools right at our disposal. We might as well use them. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates. 
and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because that was something I was going to go into in the sort of the training portion of this was how would you advise people to use it? You know, should we be collating data using these kind of apps and recording it? Is it a case of just writing it down to reflect back on it when we're feeling particularly low? You know, are these kind of apps and things useful that you see being advertised on like the iTunes store, etc.? Have you found any of them work and are they worth it? You know, I, I actually haven't bought any apps of that nature, Ian. I, I pretty much just use like the notes app on, um, or, you know, there's a, there's an app I have, I don't even know what it's called where I can just record voice memos and, hmm. um, that's pretty much what I use. So it's pretty, pretty simple. It, there's no, there's no direction given on it other than, you know, put your notes in here and save it and you can call them up. You can do a search on it. Um, so that's, I haven't gone to the to the to that level of of buying apps and can so I can't really tell you whether I, they're helpful or not. Because that's the thing. I think everybody wants that simple fix. They want to you know buy that app, buy that book that's going to give them everything. And a lot of them don't want to actually do the work themselves or address their own individual sort of situation. Um, in the book, you know, you talk about being over prepared. Can like a, a normal athlete, a normal person really get to the level of like an elite performer because they would have the coaches, the training staff, the the time to prepare and do all these sorts of things. You know, I liked how you could make like I've, I've seen it firsthand how we can do these changes almost instantly. And I've had this over like my whole life kind of thing. But can we get to that level? Do you think? Can a normal person get to kind of elite status in in their chosen field? I think there's. Well, I'll, I'll I'll share. This is a. I'll take you on a brief tangent here. But there was a book I read called The Sports Gene. Fascinating book. Loved it. And in that particular book, they were talking specifically about athletic performance, and it went in to say that you know there's a there's a much greater percentage of your athletic performance that's based on your genetics than you might, you might think. And so based on what I read there, I would say, you know, for certain fields like athletics, you're, you're limited in what you can do, or you're maximized in what you can do based on your genetic code, which can't be changed. Um, obviously hard work plays a, plays a role. I don't want to diminish that. Um, but, but the same level of work with two people, with different genetics, they're going to end up in a different place. Um, when it comes to things that are not reliant on like genetics uh, around like athletic performance, if it's more around, you know, being able to do a good job at work or um, I, I think there's a much greater potential to become an expert in your craft with, you know, dedicated practice, um, deliberate practice as, as is described by Kay Anders Erickson. And so I think there, there's a lot more potential for what I'll call the average people, not those that won the genetic lottery, in our in a field that requires you to win the genetic lottery 
Because that's something I do notice, like in a lot of these kind of lower level sports, um, you know, like jujitsu, football, whatever it is, there's always that couple of players who have the the physical gifts. You know, they're always like the stronger, faster, or better talented, and they've been allowed to kind of just nurture their gifts in the ways that maybe other people don't because they've got jobs, kids, whatever it is. And I think this is a kind of way of really leveling up people where they're, they're actually showed these tricks where, you know, they don't need to listen to that voice in their head and they can actually go in, you know, utilize the gifts they're given in their own individual way. And it's, and it actually made me kind of disappointed in a way when I think back to like, if I hadn't, if I'd known this sooner, the changes I could have made. And, and <laughs> then too. I realized, yeah. And it's like your brain kind of going, oh, I need something to be negative about. Cause, <laughs> and the, you know, I mean, it's like, and the book was fantastic. And it was just kind of like, right, what do I do? What do I, like, I, I kept listening over and over to the different chapters, but the training section I particularly liked. Now, you were talking about being overprepared. So how do we know we start training, you know, if it's athletics, if it's basketball, if it's, you know, just in your own work environment? How do we know we're preparing in the right way? You talk about, you know, the training becoming automatic. Can you go into a little bit about that and how we know we're on the right path? Sure. Um, I'll share a story with you that uh, I don't think this one's in the book, but when I was, I went down to spring training before the baseball season starts where, where the players are getting ready and they're, you know, getting their bodies ready to, for the regular season. And there was a, you know, picture nine pitching mounds separated by about 10 feet each with uh, nine home plates, you know, the 60 feet, six inches away and catchers behind those plates. So you got nine pitchers throwing, nine catchers catching these balls. And I noticed something and it was, um, it was a string that was, it went all the way across kind of the home plates for all nine plates. Um, and it was, the string was at about the height of what would be the batter's knees. There was no batter there. These guys were just pitching without a batter. Um, but what they were trying to do is they were trying to hit the string every single pitch that they threw while they were practicing. And I, I was standing next to Rick and I said, you know, tell me more about the string. And he said, well, this is, this is in the, uh, you know, he, he was one of the pitching coaches of the Oakland days during the Moneyball era. So he was big on analytics. He said, you know, the, the analytics show that the, uh, major league baseball batting average when you throw the ball at the batter's knees is like, you know, 181, you know, not a good batting average. It basically means 181 hits out of a thousand at bats. Um, he said, but if you start moving up the strike zone closer to the batter's waist, the batting average goes up and, you know, gets as high as 300 or even higher, which is bad for the pitcher. Uh, that means more hits against him. And so he's like, I'm training my pitchers and giving them immediate feedback to throw it at the knees every time. And they know, right, you know, within one second of the ball leaving their hand, whether they, whether they did it well or whether they need to make an adjustment in their delivery. And so I think um, having, when you are practicing, having real-time feedback where you know, you know, immediately, did, did I do that well or do I need to make some adjustments? And then being able to make the necessary adjustments. Obviously, it certainly helps if you do have somebody who's watching you, who's an expert and can, can give you feedback as well. Um, but I think there, there are probably a lot. Of, I mean, I'll just, I'll say, um, I, you know, golf is one of my hobbies. And one of my fears is when I go to the driving range 
and I'm practicing that I'm just embedding further bad habits by practicing a bad swing because uh, I don't necessarily always have the feedback. Uh, I mean, I have the feedback about wh where the ball is going, but I don't necessarily you know, have myself on video all the time and can see, well, why did it do that? And so on. So I, I think mm -hmm. the more situations we put ourselves in where we get immediate feedback, where we can see how we did it, what we did, we have other people giving us feedback in the process, you're much more likely to, you know, sort of have have a quicker turnaround on improving your performance through that process. Yeah, I really like that. And when I've listened to the book, well, the audiobook at the time, um, you were mentioning about unconscious competence through deliberate practice. And, you know, that kind of, that made sense because the way you build up in the book, you kind of explain how about reframing and then how you replace the the negativity and the sort of the bad thinking with like the autopilot of the actions that you want to use. Now, could you go into a little bit about that? I mean, could you, is that what you were meaning just now about that kind of training? You mentioned about chunking as well, where you break down the, you know, the scary task or the large task into smaller areas. And you just keep practicing those smaller areas until you can do them with your eyes closed and feel it rather than, you know, having to be told you're doing it right. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting. The, there's a, there's a, you know, a couple different chapters in the book that you, they could be viewed as at odds with each other. So there's a there's a chapter called, you know, reframe from trying harder to trying easier. And then there's another chapter called reframing from being prepared to being overprepared. And you could look at it and say, like, you know, you're not making any sense there, Hoekstra. Tell me, tell me what you mean by those. They seem to be at odds with each other. And it's it's really this idea of, you know, prepare hard, perform easy. So you are trying really hard and you're putting in, you know, countless amounts of hours and repetitions during the practice. Once you get to the actual performance, you, you do want to be almost on autopilot, uh, that unconscious competence that you've built up through all those repetitions in practice. And, you know, there was one point in time when I was speaking with Rick and I asked him, you know, Rick, how do you know? when it's time for you to go out and talk to a pitcher during a game, like how, what are you looking for that gives you that signal? And his answer is pretty funny. He said, you know, the second I start to see the pitcher think I get out there. He doesn't want the pitcher <laughs> thinking <laughs> he wants them on autopilot, you know, and he's like, I know bad things are going to happen. This, the second they start thinking out there, cause they're not in their routine anymore. And they've, you know, they're, they've got a million thoughts going through their head and it's just not going to help them. So, you know, he, he actually goes back and tries to get them to the point that they're, you know, they're not thinking again. And if he feels like when he goes out there and talks to them that they're uh, not going to be able to do that, that's when he pulls a pitcher from the game. No, it's, it's true. I mean, I can think of times I've been training and, you know, you just go into autopilot and you're just going through the motions, repetitive, repetitive. And, you know, sometimes you're doing things perfect. And then the second you think about where your armor had been or somebody makes a comment, you can switch out of it and you're like, you can't get back into that rhythm. You know, as soon as your brain starts thinking, it's almost sometimes like, okay, stop, take a break, go back into it. So could you go into a little bit about the the really interesting concept of training hard, but learning to when to go easy? Because that sure. really made a big impact because there's times I've been training jiu-jitsu and I thought, 
I'm I'm doing terrible here. Right, I'm going to grab his arm. I'm going to throw him down. I'm going to smash it. You know, I'm going to go fifty times harder in every roll, like every kind of you know practice uh, fight. And sure. then you were saying he should go easy. It, yeah. It, so it, uh, one of the stories that that I you know think really kind of you know tells this well is um, you know Michael Phelps, the you know world champion, gold medalist uh, swimmer from the United States that has won all these medals and is viewed as one of the best swimmers, if not the best swimmer of all time, his coach used to just really put him through the paces in practice and do things that would actually be viewed by many as, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, one example was he would, he would actually like step on his goggles before he jumped into the pool. And so that when he jumped into the pool, water would flood in through his goggles and obviously it would you know, burn his eyes because of the chlorine and so on. And so it would force him in practice to learn how many strokes do I need to take from one end of the pool to the other while I swim blind. Um, and, you know, he, he learned his stroke count and could swim things essentially without having his eyes open, without the goggles actually working. He did that in practice. And, you know, as it turns out, what happened is he got into a, a race in the Olympics where he dove in to the pool and his goggles, you know, sort of fell off his eyes and went down by his chin. And so he had to swim blindly. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't open his eyes at that point. And he, because of all the practice and repetition he had done in that same way in practice, he was able to just swim the race as if it was a normal race. He ends up not only winning the race, but setting a world record. So um, it's just amazing that, you know, you put yourself in practice in much harder than you think you'll ever need conditions. And then when you, if you know, you'll probably never need <laughs> that level of conditions, but if you do, you've been there before and you, and you have a comfort level with it. It's not something that's new to you. It, you know, new situations tend to, you know, put people into a panic mode. So the more that you can practice, you know, uh, another, another example of when I was speaking with uh, the Navy SEAL trainer, he was saying, you know, we call war monkey business. And, and I don't mean to be flippant about it by any means. Um, but he said, we practice so hard, we train so hard in the SEALs that when we actually get into a real combat situation, it's a piece of cake. It's easy. It's it's like, you know, this is one-tenth as hard as what we were went through in practice. And so the more that you can put yourself in, you know, s- stressful, strenuous situations in practice, then the the more likely that it's going to be easy when you're performing and, and you, you can then relax. You can then trust your preparation. You can then kind of go on autopilot because you're so well-versed from your preparation. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And the book lays it out superbly because, you know, you talk about training hard, learning it, you know, breaking down each of the skills and you know, training it until it becomes just part of you that you can do it without really thinking about it. And then you talk about the need to sort of be able to dial it back. And I can think of plenty of times where by being trying harder, I was actually failing more. And by just kind of relaxing, you kind of, you know, it it lets you kind of slip into the autopilot and your brain just goes, Okay, I know how to do this. And it cuts you cut out the voices in your head and you just do it. And you're so much better. But is this concept, you know, like the guy stepping on the goggles, um, changing the different ways he trains, 
is this the the bit you mentioned in the book about the um, embracing chaos, becoming familiar with chaos, where you kind of you do dial up everything so much that you ne- you go overboard almost. So like in a situation, say for jujitsu competing, I would go in and do like um, Shark Tank where you roll with five people fresh, you know, one fresh yeah. after the other for five yeah. minutes yeah. because that kind of overtrains you. So you, you go automatically into that way of thinking. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's the harder than normal conditions you should be practicing under, not just what would be considered normal conditions. And you know, sometimes you got to get creative to, to figure out how to create those harder than normal conditions. I know, you know, just as an example, being in the, in the business world and having a sales team that, you know, we'll, we'll do dry runs of sales presentations that we're going to be making to a client and we'll, we'll have someone intentionally play the role of, you know, a difficult, challenging client asking, you know, ridiculous questions and things that you'll probably aren't going to come up during the course of the, the actual presentation itself. But, you know, if you feel like, wow, wow we could, we we're ready for anything now if, after we've answered that guy's questions or that gal's questions. Um, and then it makes the, the actual presentation to the client who more often than not is, is reasonable. Um, if you've answered unreasonable questions and things in advance, then you're, you're much better prepared and feel like, you know, we're ready for anything here. Because I suppose that's part of it is like the the part of your brain that when you're thinking about something and you're worrying about it, you always think of things that could go wrong or will happen, and they're nowhere near possible. You know, it's yeah. got to have like a giraffe and a like a masquerading zebra. You know, it's gonna it goes so preposterous in your head, and it's like your brain doesn't have the experience to go. Well, why would that happen? You know, where is if you do these training things so repetitively so that you can do the feel, you know, exactly the motion to go through and, you know, that gets into your head and your body just goes, you know, I've got this and you can just channel like your brain. And then when you start to try, like Rick did, you go and, you know, you stop it there and then you relieve the stress and then you get back into it. it it's really well done. So how does things yeah, like... In what, if I'll jump in just for one sec. I think one question to... If you're coaching somebody else who's in a pressure situation, a question that I um, would ask would be, you know, think back to your your absolute best performances in whatever you're competing in or performing in. And, you know, were they... Were you grinding and just was it was it an absolute strenuous activity uh, to, to perform that well in that situation, or or did it were you in a state of flow where it felt comfortable, normal, natural? Um, and probably ninety plus people that I ninety plus percent of the people that I would ask that question to, it's I was comfortable, I was relaxed, I was in a state of flow. So, the, you know, it, it's a reminder to say like you shouldn't be you know, grinding and having to give, you know, 110% and trying to do things that you've never done before and trying to be perfect when you're performing, those things aren't going to help you. What's actually going to help you is to get yourself in a relaxed state um, and trust the preparation that you've done and that that's as good as you're going to be is the level of performance you had in your preparation. You're not going to all of a sudden show up and be you know, it's, it's an unrealistic expectation to show up and say, I'm going to be better under pressure than I was in any of the situations where I was practicing and, you know, pre- preparing. 
I really, I really like that because there was there's so many things in the book that I was thinking, well, I'll ask about this. What about this? And I, I found it really difficult to sort of to get general questions because there's so many areas you could go into and really go in, you know, really dive deep in. So why does things like breathing come into account here? You know, do you find these other techniques like visualization, journaling, these sorts of things, apart from writing down, you know, where you've been successful previously, do any of these other things really have an effect that you found compared to the, you know, the techniques in the book? Yeah, I think they all play together. I think they're, the, the things you just mentioned are very helpful as well. Um, it, if you think about breathing, you know, breathing is um, what, you're really, what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to get, you know, the chemistry in your body working for you instead of against you. And breathing is another one of those things that sort of, you know, s- slows your heart rate down. It gets your sort of puts you into mental processing mode of being able to use the frontal lobe of your brain that's for higher level thinking rather than the reptilian part of your brain, which is just sort of that caveman uh, reactionary uh, fight, flight, or freeze type of response. And so the, the things you mentioned, whether it's, you know, breathing, you know, even, even getting more rest, you know, we all know how important that is uh, in stressful situations to be well rested. So all those things help. And, you know, I'll never, never say that there's a, you know, uh, a silver bullet that you know sort of trumps everything else. I think they all work together. They're complementary. Something I would like to do, like after say like events I've been to or things I've done and stuff, is you know you kind of reflect back and look at it and maybe write some notes and sort of gauge how things could have gone better, what I did well, etc. How do you? Is there a way to log? how you deal with pressure you know do you is it a way to kind of say look at it and use it for reference points so you can catch it so you know when you're about to go into a bad situation or when things are escalating or you know or to use it as a reference point so you don't you can deal with the next pressure situation better by using the last you know does our brain or have you found any evidence of this record it and use it as a sort of sounding board for the next one I think it does from my experience. And one of the things that the re- the reality is even with, um, even with all the best intentions and preparation, so on, you're still not always going to be performing at your best under pressure in a hundred percent of situations. So the situations where you, where you're something less than perfect, which is, you know, almost all the time you're, it just depends on how much less than perfect. I think that the, you know, the, the thing I think about is, you know, what what would I do different if I was to do it next time? And to capture that, and it almost rewires your brain to say that you actually did do that, right? So if you think about your performance and you say, you know, when I was giving that sales presentation, I said this in a more influential way of saying it would have been to say this. You've actually, in my mind, already started preparing for your next sales presentation. You've already wired it into your brain that that's what you will do the next time, even though you didn't do it this time. So could you give an example of like, you know, say a sales presentation? Could, you know, is there somebody that you've worked with who has really kind of exemplified the teachings in the book? You know, is there somebody that you've seen who's been terrible with pressure 
being able to deal with it. You know, is there an example you could give? Because I'm always wary that I go sometimes too much into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the athlete stuff. So I always like to make sure I cover the non, sure, like um, you know, non-athletic performance style of things. Yeah, I mean, I can give, I can actually give a couple <clears throat> examples from my own family. Um, so when we were, you know, when we were drafting the book, um, I shared a copy, an early version of it, with my sister-in-law, and asked for her feedback and. You know, she read the book and she came back to me and said, you know, maybe a month later after I'd given it to her, and this was right around Christmas time. And she said, I'm, I'm so glad you gave me this book and said, well, thanks. I appreciate it. What, you know, what did you find useful? And she said, well, the, the choir director in the church choir had asked her to sing a solo for, over the Christmas holiday. And she was super nervous and didn't want to do it. And she said, you know, why would he want me to sing a solo? And she was, her natural inclination was to say no and to run away from that as fast as she could. And she, you know, she reframed that scenario from it being a threat to singing a solo in the church choir at Christmas time to an opportunity. Like he wouldn't have chosen me to sing a solo if he didn't think that I had a good voice. He's not going to put me out there to set me up for failure. He's, he mm -hmm. wants me to shine. He, he's, he trusts that I have a great voice. And so she decided, you know, against her initial reaction to actually go forward and to sing the solo. And she said, it's one of the most rewarding things I've done in, in years. And I wouldn't have done it if I wasn't able to reframe. So that's one, you know, sort of personal example that happened just even in the, before the book was even published. And then there's a story in the book as well about my son that, um, he was in hockey trouts and he's, he's now, uh, seven, you know, he's, he's actually, uh, 18 years old now. He was 12 at the time, but the, he, he, you know, he was trying out for a hockey club that he had never, uh, or that he had skated with these kids over the summer, but it was a new club and it was more competitive than the team he had played on the previous year. So it was gonna be more difficult to make the team. There was about 50 kids going out for the team and only 18 spots. And we get to tryouts on the first night and there's, you know, a registration table and there's two sets of jerseys there. And there's a, you know, some black jerseys with numbers on the back and some white jerseys with numbers on the back. And they, you know, they give him a, a white jersey with a number on the back. So that the coach knows, you know, who he is as he's doing his ratings and evaluations. And my wife and I come into the arena and we sit down and, you know, as the kids start coming onto the ice to warm up before they're going to scrimmage, you realize like, wow, um, most of the kids, and I'd seen a bunch of their practices over the summer, most of the kids that are shoe-ins to make the team are wearing black jerseys. And Cole, my son, is wearing a white jersey. Oh, no, like, this isn't good, right? He's He looks mm -hmm. like he's potentially not going to be on the team or he's going to get cut or he's this and that. And, and of course, your my caveman took over, my wife's caveman took over. Uh, my wife says to me, you know, why did we even have him try out for this team? Like, why don't we just take him back to the team he played for last year? And um, I said, well, wait a second here. Like, <laughs> this is what I've been studying for the last, you know, three years this is a perfect opportunity to reframe. We're feeling threatened that our son is going to get, you know, mentally hurt by getting cut uh, from this team. What's another way of thinking about this? And uh, I had actually coached, you know, numerous youth athletic teams. And I said, you know, the coach is probably trying to figure out, you know, which are the kids that are on the bubble of making the team 
that are, that can compete against the best kids, the kids that are already shoe-ins for the team, who can handle that pressure, who can handle that skill level. And that's how he was determining, you know, who's going to ultimately get the last spots on the team. And I was able to kind of sort of tampen down my caveman, as you said uh, earlier, and share that with my wife. And we relaxed a little bit and said, that's probably the, that's probably what's happening. And then, you know, after the tryout was over, my son Cole comes out to our car and, you know, we had sort of, Sherry and I, my wife had calmed down at the time and we said, you know, Cole, how do you think it went? And, you know, he said, it was really hard out there. You know, the, the, the team with black jerseys had uh, most of the best players on it. And I knew that most likely it was because coach Nick wanted to see how we would play against those kids that are the best on the team. And, and I, you know, I didn't play perfectly, but I played pretty well. I'm happy with how, how I played. I was able to show my skills and uh, you know, long story short is that, or short story long is that he ended up making the team and their team ended up having a fabulous season. They went on to win the state high school hockey or the state tournament for the age group that he was in. And, you know, without him being able to reframe himself on the bench during tryouts in a stressful situation as a 12 year old, you know, he may not have made that team. He may not have had that great experience and our family wouldn't have had the great experience. And so those are just a couple personal examples of, you know, um, a variety of different contexts that this can be used in. And, you know, I've, I've talked to friends of mine whose kids struggle with taking tests and, you know, strategies to use the reframing as you're going into a test. And, you know, so it literally can apply across any and every pressure situation you find yourself in. I did love that story when I read it, you know, I heard it in the book, I was like, it really hit home how teaching them young can make such a difference in a child's life rather than letting everybody think, you know, oh, I can't do anything about this. I'm just never going to be good at tests. And then you start believing that you're not good enough and, you know, the negative benefits that, uh, that can bring to a child's life. And it's, it's, it's fantastic to speak to you and have the opportunity to go into this book. I mean, I'd love to do a round two where we kind of go into a deeper and, you know, there's so much to cover, but I'm really, I'm aware of the time. But So how should we look at pressure and dealing with it? You know, what, what would you say is, is our general takeaway message for people? Yeah, if I had, um, you know, the, the, the headline of the book is to reframe pressure situations from your instinctual thought of it being a threat to seeing that pressure situation as an opportunity. And obviously there's lots of flavors and different ways to do that, but that's really the headline, you know, threat to opportunity. And so if you find yourself in a pressure situation, ask yourself the question, you know, what's my opportunity. And that's, that's the start of, you know, getting out of the caveman part of your brain and getting into the part of your brain that's actually going to help you. Well, the book is definitely going to be something I give to everybody else, you know, as a gift um, to my nephews, my niece, even just to friends in jiu-jitsu and training who are struggling with that sort of mental capacity. But how could people, you know, find you, get the website, get, you know, like perfect time for a sales pitch for the book as well? Yeah, I, uh, I've got a lot of free resources on my website, which is juddhoekstra.com. It's J-U-D-D. H O E K S T R A dot com. And if you do backslash resources, there's a whole bunch of whether it be, uh, you know, 
short videos or podcasts or you know blog articles, whatever your sort of medium of choice is, uh, you know, please please go out there and tap into those. And uh, if you if you want to look me up on LinkedIn, uh, feel free to do that as well. I'm uh, more than happy to to connect with folks or uh, Twitter. It's it's at judhoke.com. J U D D H O E K for Twitter. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.